Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. You join us in the week where there have been three countum days of debate in the House of Commons about Article 50, culminating in a vote which Labour whipped. We'll talk later about what a three-line whip means. We also talk about who the next Labour leader might be. Place your bets now, people. And Jason Cowley, our editor, joins us to talk about his interview with the Prime Minister, Theresa May. So, Article 50, Stephen, what a thrill, what a joy, what a dance. Labour didn't really get anything they wanted out of it, so we haven't got a guarantee that the rights of EU nationals in the UK will be protected. Although watch that space, because it's something that 80% of people in the country think we ought to, 14% don't know, and only 6% oppose. So that is your classic issue for where the Lords enjoys defeating the government. It's one where they can basically go, look, there might not be a parliamentary majority for this in the Commons, we might be unelected, but guess what, all of the people who do the electing agree with us. Yeah. And I was talking to a Brexit Tory MP last week who said, well, personally, I want to support this concession, but I understand that she doesn't feel that her hands can be bound. So I have a hope that that will still happen. Chukra Muna's £350 for the NHS, unsurprisingly, got defeated. Boris Johnson had the chutzpah to vote against that one. But I mean, Chukka slash Vote Leave Watch got what they wanted, which was the spectacle of uh, the Vote Leavers wandering through the division lobbies saying no, no, no to the £350 for the NHS. Because without wishing to be cynical about why politicians do things, from Chuck's perspective, there are two prizes to be won. One, there's turning the, uh, the next election into a referendum on Vote Leave's promises were they kept, yes, no. And obviously Vote Leave's promises cannot be kept because they are like this menu of possible Brexits you can have. And even a successful Brexit is, is going to be like one item on that menu. And the other, of course, is shareable videos with subtitles, with Chucker being very glossy and attractive and charismatic. And wouldn't you like to pay three quid to vote for this guy at some point in the future? Oh, look at you, so cynical. Well, that brings me on to talking of things that are cynical, because I, in the safe space of the podcast, can admit that I am enjoying a measure of schadenfreude at Jeremy Corbyn's travails over the Article 50 bill. As some of the regular listeners might know, I worried that at some point I might be in a nursing home going, it was just a second reading over the welfare bill, which Harriet, peace be upon her, Harmon, when she was leader, asked the party to abstain on. They all voted against it at the third reading, but her rationale is both that we can't be seen to be deaf to the idea that people have concerns about high welfare spending and also that some of the amendments in the bill that we liked. Fast forward two years... 
to Jeremy Corbyn, who votes for something that is popular with the country and Labour voters at large, but extremely unpopular with Labour members. He says, collective responsibility, Diane Abbott, a lifelong pro-European with a very pro-Remain constituency, votes for this to be triggered, saying, you know, we've just got to accept the will of the people. So it's gone down quite badly with Labour tweeters. I'm not sure if you've got any idea about how core Corbyn supporting members feel about this. Do you mean as in like the Corbynite core or do you mean as in the swing Labour member who voted for Jeremy in 2015 and 2016 but might voted for David Miliband in 2010? Yeah, I mean that second group. So I think the second group is fairly dismayed. So I'm going to say two things which I believe are both true but are going to sound contradictory. I would say Corbyn scepticism in its broadest sense is probably now the mainstream view among Labour activists. However, I would still expect if there were a leadership election tomorrow, if you reran Owen Smith versus Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy would still get 55, 51%, right? I think the rhetoric has changed though, because what I now hear from people, even people who are still broadly Corbyn supported voted from both times, is actually it was never about him as a person. Yeah, I want to bring you it's up on the, the uh, on the welfare bill comparison though. Yeah. Because, so obviously I love Harriet Harman. If she was a religion, I would convert. And I actually think that voting for both the welfare bill on the second reading and on Article 50 on the second reading... Were, they abstained on the second reading, so it wasn't even as much of an Sorry, abstaining on the second reading Article 50. were the right call, right? But the intention with the welfare bill was to send a signal that Labour had got it, as far as swing voters were concerned, on welfare, and that they weren't going to be, in heavy inverted commas, a soft touch. And Harriet was convinced by the polling, which showed that she, as kind of someone who people regarded as not political because she was stepping down, could symbolically cleanse the palate for Labour and give the new leader the platform to benefit from that. So the point was to send a sharply anti-welfare signal. I don't think people can legitimately get annoyed that the sharply anti-welfare signal was was heard by Labour activists as well as by voters at large. No, it's not that. But uh, for me, what's interesting is it, it's very revealing of the way that people come to their political beliefs, which is not the way around you know it's not we don't assess all the evidence and then come to a political belief we make big broad sweeping judgments based around people who feel like they're on our side and we invest in them and then we give those people the benefit of the doubt and we give the people who have seen to us on the other side we presume the worst of the things that that they do and i think that's what i think is really interesting about this is that you could use exactly the same arguments to justify either of those votes but it's just whether or not which one you do it kind of depends on who you are willing to extend your idea of good faith towards I think. Also, the big difference, as I think, thankfully, hardly anyone is now arguing with this. Jeremy's a Eurosceptic. He always has been. But also, don't he, you think yeah, it, was, it was the right thing to do, actually, to whip them to vote for article for triggering Article 50? Uh, so, uh, although I think Clive Lewis ended up on this position through opportunism and being worried about losing his seat, I actually think Clive's position was the right one, to vote for it on the second reading, to basically go, we recognise that people have voted to leave. And actually, I, I'm afraid I, I find the argument of only 37% of people voting voted to leave. Yeah, I don't know that was a weird just, sort of idea that... Uh, you oh, can't, it was advisory, if, all of these arguments If people are, don't turn up, then that's they're saying yeah. they don't care about the result yeah, so, one way or another. You can't dragoon them. But I just think these are all very tedious arguments to ignore the outcome of a free and fair election. But, so I think the right thing to say was say, look, we completely concede that this has to happen and maybe we can revisit it. I still believe that we are better off in the EU and I, I think that, our, that view is unlikely to be changed. But we're now going to try and, and get the best possible deal out of this. And then you go, look, in committee stage, we have a variety of demands and asks for the government. And then if you don't get those asks, you vote against it on the third reading. That feels to me the right position for the Labour Party. It also 
in terms of what the polling suggests about where their voters are, they are going to lose voters whatever their Brexit position is. But actually, the Lewis position is the one that allows them to hold on to most. And in terms of his own seat... The Clive it, Lewis position, not the Helen Lewis position. The Clive position. Lewis position, sorry. It allow, it, yeah, in terms of his own seat, where the Remain problem is more acute, but actually even somewhere like Norwich South, 70% Remain, but 30% is quite a large number, right? He could have won that election with 30% of the vote last time around. It allows him to basically say to people who voted to leave, look, I... I've respected your decision because I voted to trigger on the second reading. And then the people are going, but look, this is a disastrous, unplanned Brexit where we have no basic guarantees on Ireland. So if, say, the price of a good deal where, you know, where people can still travel freely to the continent on holiday and there's a treaty for our banks and our manufacturing to still you know, have the benefits of single market membership, but we have to pay a £60 billion divorce bill. It is the settled view of most people who voted in the referendum remain or leave, and that's probably a price they're willing to pay. There is definitely a majority in the Commons for that, but there isn't a majority within the majority party, within the Tory party itself. If Theresa May decides that actually she's more frightened of the Tories than she is of the recession we get on WTO terms, the bare minimum is the House of Commons ought to be able to go, no, sorry, we we want to accept this deal, okay, thanks, bye. So I think without those guarantees, you then should and could have justified voting against Article 50 in the third reading. That would have made lots of people's lives, including Diane's, Emily Thornberry's, Keir Starmer, Kate Osamore, you know, various people with large pro-Remain constituents, lives significantly easier. However, one of the reasons why we've ended up where we have is because the Labour leader has always wanted to... I mean, this is... This is the only time he has voted in favour of Article 50 because he opposed it when we when it was in the Lisbon Treaty. He is a Eurosceptic. Sorry, I'm just enjoying being able to say that without three people explaining to me that actually he secretly loved Europe, which is why he voted against Maastricht, Lisbon, Nice, every sodding European treaty over 32 years. Well, let's let's move now to some uh, some fake news. So a rumour was going around earlier in the week that it was time for St. Jez to um, ascend to a higher plane. I think what's interesting about that, obviously the leader's office denied it. You wrote a blog saying, well, look, they haven't set an exit date, but they have talked about succession planning. And it was interesting to see John McDonnell hail Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's one of the junior ministers at the Treasury, shadow ministers of the Treasury, as, you know, the next generation of socialist leadership. Around conference last year, they were pushing Angela Rayner, the Shadow Education Secretary, forward. I think they they backed away from that, but at the time they definitely. I think were. so. I I think it was more than she had a very good speech. There was a lot of media interest in her. Everyone agreed in the Labour Party could all agree that they all thought grammar schools were bad. I mean, that was the thing. It was one of the few things that literally everybody agreed on and it made them feel happy that they had got one thing. Yeah, so a lot of people keep describing Angela Rayner as a Corbynite and unfortunately, if I go around to all of these people's houses with a baseball bat, apparently I'll go to prison or something. But it's much more accurate, as you say, to basically see it as there are many areas of policy where the Labour Party cannot unify. Ironically, actually, there are two. One is the settled will of the PLP was broadly than they needed to vote to trigger Article 50. The second actually is that grammar schools are bad. And also happily on the grammar schools are bad, they and basically everyone who knows anything about education policy. Yeah, including like Michael Gove's former advisors, you know, loads of... Yeah, um, and probably every... Michael Gove, although he will vote for it as part of his, you know, his cunning plan to to, Do whatever to is return to, to power at some point. Yeah, so of the... So that's why she was 
sort of add very prominent. And also, you know, she's 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 great. She gives a great speech. She's you know very charismatic one to one. When I the Westminster hour with her, they've got these mugs, and we've always wanted them. And like Nikki Morgan, who's lovely but in lovely in that very kind of posh Tory way, was just like, oh, I've always wanted one of those mugs, but I always felt you know a trifle too embarrassed to ask. And Angela Rayner's just like, I used to be a unison negotiator. I'm going to get us some mugs. She vanished off somewhere and came back not just with a mug for herself, but with a mug for me, Ian Martin, formerly of the Telegraph, and and Nikki Morgan. Trade union activism works. Every time I drink from that mug, I think of that. That's what my license fee has paid for you to sup your, you know, white male tears from a bit of taxpayer funded mug. Yeah, it's a good mug. Yeah, actually, the BBC mugs are good china. They have the ones on uh, on the Sunday politics, and every time I, I grasp one, I think it's good china. Yeah. None of your, you know, ordered off the internet rubbish here. Anyway, so the the problem is, as you wrote in the piece, any new candidate on the ballot doesn't inherit, you know, as what happened in last summer. Jeremy Corbyn didn't have to seek nominations again. They've got to get nominations. And yeah, and really... people aren't going to be nominating for the banter this time. <laughs> like, that must... <laughs> That's not going to happen. That's one of my favourite bits in the transcript of my interview from Diane. Is like, oh, and you started the precedent of people lending nominations. And she hooted. Diane's got a great laugh. And she went, yeah, they won't do that again. Then she told the story of what happened. She's like, and yeah, and that started the ball rolling. But they'll never do it again. No, they never. No, I think that at least once, bitten twice, shy on that one. But that means that all of the kind of candidates, both from the soft left, both from the kind of pragmatic centre who served for um, under Corbyn, and you know the actual few genuine Corbynites, all of them are kind of presented with this big problem. Which is why, if I had to place my own money on this, I would say I would say Keir Starmer simply because he's acceptable to everybody, even for people who don't feel enthused mm, about him. I think there are a couple of points against Keir Starmer. But One, there's a couple of points against everybody, right? But I think specific points, and I think, will become more acute. One was the odd decision to hail the government's non-concession of a vote on the deal as a concession. It wasn't, right? Because there's there's a vote on the deal where the parliament can go, we don't like this deal, go back and get another one, or you know, revoke our Article 50 notice. Or, Which you is know. not what they got. Yeah, instead they got this accept the deal or WTO terms. There is no deal Theresa May could bring before the House of Commons that would be worse than us leaving without a deal. So so basically, Parliament will be given a vote on accept the deal or I kick you in the head. It's not really a vote in a meaningful sense. That has mystified a lot of MPs. A lot of Labour MPs were just like, but this isn't a concession. I don't understand why he thought it was a concession. Why did he say it was a concession? Someone described the move as kind of general bewilderment. So that that doesn't help him. Also, there are lots of reasons why the leader's office and kind of that wing of the party in general think that Rebecca Long-Bailey is the bee's knees. But one of them is that there is an expectation that in the next leadership election, there will be a strong feeling of it's time for a woman. It's got a Stephen. bit embarrassing. Stephen, we... Stephen, Stephen. There's always a strong feeling of it should be a woman. And then they always elect a bloody man. There yeah, was but... a strong feeling last time that it should be a woman. Right, I'm disappointed. Everyone went, yes, but Jeremy now is, is definitely... But yeah. I think that... He's like a woman, only only better somehow. But the difference is, is the, the one way Labour has traditionally managed that is with an all-women shortlist. And you can see how that an all-women shortlist helps almost everyone, but particularly if you are not of the soft-left faction that Keir Starmer is, right? Well, this is, is the classic the, uh, because, use of an all-women shortlist to shaft the male candidate that you don't like, right? Um, yeah, so, long, so the bookies have, have massively shortened Clive Lewis's candidacy. I always feel uneasy about comparing him with Chucker because it kind of feels like a, a tell for like, I, a faintly rob- racist lobby man who doesn't know much about the Labour Party. But one of the things they do have in common, right, is Chucker went on a journey in the last parliament from the soft left to the Blairite wing. 
Actually, his views are more complex, but but that was broadly how it was seen. And what happened was a lot of people on the soft left who might have nominated him were like, he's not our guy. And a lot of Blairite MPs, broadly defined, who he'd moved towards were like, where were you when we were shit? And they didn't want to nominate him. So your him. problem is that but Clive Lewis has got a foot in each camp of the Corbynites and the soft left, but that yeah. makes him the candidate of neither. It may, yeah, it makes him the candidate of no one. There's also a lot of talent on the soft left at the moment. So there's Keir Starmer, obviously, and whoever the soft left candidate is will have Lynn Brown, who used to be a whip. She's very well connected in the PLP, effectively acting, doing what Vernon Coker and Shabana Mahmood did for Yvette Cooper, Steve Rotherham did for Andy Burnham, and John McDonnell actually did for Jeremy, which actually getting MPs to nominate them. Clive Lewis doesn't really have someone in the PLP who you know people like, who's well connected. Yeah, everyone loves Steve Rotherham. I don't think you can say that about John McDonnell. I mean, had it been John McDonnell putting up you know, rather than Jeremy Corbyn, then he wouldn't have got. Well, in some way. ways, don't underestimate with Jeremy. Like, why did say Emily nominate him? Well, because when she was a new MP as his neighbouring MP, lots of women MPs in the 2005 intake were. Oh, I've got this old man as my neighbour, and he's in some cases playing quite childish tricks on me, like saying like the meeting starts at 8 and it turned out it started at 7.30 that is something actual adult men were doing to their neighbouring women in the 2005 intake and like Jeremy is lovely you know he turned up once when David Lammy's speaker launching his campaign got cold so Jeremy Corbyn's like, oh, don't worry, I'll turn up and, you know, like... It's give true, a he filled in for Diane and her um, suspicious headache last yeah. week uh, so, at a Labour Party fundraiser, so, so he's he, just a nice he guy. He had a lot of goodwill going back years. And for the 2015 intake, who didn't want to upset anyone because they were like, oh, but one of Andy or Yvette will win, and if I nominate Andy or Yvette, Yvette and the other one wins, I'll be exiled into the darkness, and if I nominate Liz, my members will eat me because she's a Tory. And Jeremy was safe and he was warm and he'd built up this goodwill over years. Clive has been around for, in the scheme of the PLP, five minutes. He has not built built out, and he doesn't have someone who has. So Yvette did not had not built up goodwill herself, but Vernon, you know, he's everyone's mate, he's nice, he's polite, he conveys warmth. He was her, her guarantor for a lot of people. Ditto Andy Burnham, one of the shiny people who got promoted very early. All right, okay, Bogdan. okay, but let's cut to the quick here. If you had to bet today on who you thought would be the next leader of the Labour Party after Jeremy Corbyn, who would it be? If it's in 2020, Emily Thornberry. I'm sticking to Keir Starmer. This is good because this is the kind of thing that people love to mock us about on Twitter in several years' time. No Uh, one predicted Lucy Powell. (laughs) I mean, actually, like, if, if I... If you asked me, like, what is the high stakes bet, right? The one, if you were like, the just put card. five pounds on something. In terms of the long shot, Lucy Powell has a lot going for her. One, she's in a very safe seat, which if Brexit does tear the Labour Party's coalition apart, might turn out to be much more of an asset than we think. Two, she can count. Three, she's one of the few people who's in three different WhatsApp groups in the Labour par- Parliamentary Party. And that is more important than it sounds. If I had to put a wildcard bet on, I would put a wildcard bet on Jess Phillips for the opposite reason, which is that if you think that people are going to go for somebody who is, to, you know, not a career politician, but you think there's going to be a wild swing back in the, in the gravity of the party as everyone goes, oh my God, this was a terrible experiment, then she would be the recipient of that. But I think it's probably unlikely. But, you know, don't come crying to us basically when you lose your fiver. That's what I'm saying. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And now we are joined by the head honcho himself, Jason Cowley, our editor, who has, for the cover story this week, interviewed Theresa May. Jason, so first of all, tell us a bit about what it's like to interview the Prime Minister, because I think people just really like the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. They make you put your phone in a locker, right, when you arrive at Downing Street. Yeah, they usually do. But on this instance, I I explained to the very kind man on the door, the security man, that I actually was going to use my phone as a recording device. So for once, I was able to take it through. And then you kind of wander through various corridors. And then you appear in this office where actually... Theresa May's team is the chief of staff or the joint chief of staffs, plural, and a few other people. It looks a bit like the New Statesman office, people eating their food out of strange plastic containers and all cramped together as journalists often are. And then you're led through into the prime minister's office and she was already standing up waiting for me. Does she have good art on her walls? Because I went to interview Ken Clark last week and he's got a great picture of Churchill sitting sort of slightly slumped but looking quite regal in a seat where he too sits slightly stumped, slumped but looking quite <laughs> regal underneath it. It's a good question because when I do interviews usually I like to look at what people are wearing, I like to look at their office... But I don't know the Prime Minister. So in that sense, I didn't really have time to kind of look at her office, look at her, look at what was on her desk. She wanted to go straight into the interview. So we sat at a table. They brought me a cup of tea. She had a glass of water and then off we went. I had an hour and you could tell the way they run Theresa May's diary that there wasn't going to be much more time than an hour. So I didn't have much time to talk about Arsenal Football Club or anything like that. Which, of course, you did with Jeremy Corbyn, who is an Arsenal supporter. Big Arsenal fan, actually. So that must be nice. Um, So in the piece, you talk about a couple of different things. Let's talk first about this idea about her domestic policy being much more interventionist there's a quote from Ryan Shorthouse of Bright Blue saying she's moved to the left economically but to the right socially Um, what kind of sense did she give you about how she's different from kind of the Cameroon project well if you just look at some of the language that she uses in the in the interview and then more generally about social responsibility the common good the ethical state this is this is a break not only from what we had before with the sort of liberalizing globalizing message of Cameron but also Blair and I think she's taking the Conservatives in a different and actually very interesting direction, which is why I was prepared to take her ideas so seriously and talk to her at length about them. Stephen, you know, but you've been covering the Tories a bit in the last couple of weeks, although Labour's travails never um, really go away. Uh, how seriously do you take her kind of talk about her, an agenda? Not that seriously, to okay. be honest. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the striking things is that if One Nation Conservatism worked, they would have done it by now. The really striking thing is actually whenever she experiences any pressure from her right, she crumbles. We saw that with the housing paper. It's a lot of very lovely ambition, but at every stage, oh, we won't have a fight about the Greenbelt. Oh, we won't have a fight about land banking. The interesting thing is, in terms of what Theresa May wants to do, which I think she is sincere about, is how she deals with pressure from her right flank. Because so far, we see this with the industrial strategy, such as it is, and workers on boards, right? She liked the idea of workers on boards. The minister in charge, Greg Clark, liked it. But actually... Any kind of coordinated resistance from the conservative right suddenly go, okay, we won't have workers on boards. I think the really interesting thing about that is, and you see a version of it in the States as well, is that the kind of obstructionist tendency really works. And it's a really big challenge for democratic politics across the world is that actually, you know, the the Republicans just blocked everything they could that Obama was doing. Um, and now the Democrats have kind of been trying to do some some of the same stuff. And they're kind of going, well, how terrible that Trump's cabinet hasn't been approved yet. And I think there is a similar feeling among some of the Tory Remainers that they too have been slightly badly served because they don't make a, a huge fuss in the way that, you know, your uh, Peter Bones or your Bill Cashes do, right? That those oh, people I'm not sure about kind that. Of... Um, there's been a lot of um, briefing from the Liberal Remain wing of the Conservative Party. Look how Nicky Morgan's been behaving at times. I mean, George Osborne has been very clear and candid as to what, where his position lies. I think you've got to give her a chance because 
Yes, Stephen, she may have compromised already on, on certain key things. But I said to her that the problem is your rhetoric is good and strong, but your policies are at best modest and incremental. And she was, she was a little bit irritated about that. And if you read the piece, you'll see what she said in reply. But it's, I think, the very fact that the language has changed. Now, as someone, as I do, who believes in an active and interventionist state in, you know, in the kind of the Clement Attlee tradition of democratic politics, this is very interesting language. And I, I think, and where the philosopher John Gray understands this fundamentally, one of our key writers, that she's seeking to break with neoliberalism, but from the right. But how much do you think that that's influenced by the fact that she doesn't have a lot of pressure from Labour who are in, you know, disagree, they're having their own agonies over Brexit, or, you know, there isn't a really a strong new states accepted, left-wing press that's hammering her every day. No, that's absolutely crucial. I mean, one, all of the Conservatives I've spoken to from whatever wing of the party, they all agree that there's no pressure coming from a demoralised and divided opposition. Therefore, the, conversa- the political conversation, not on Brexit but on other matters, is taking place inside the Conservative family, by which I mean the Conservative Party, the right-wing press and the business community. There's absolutely no pressure coming from the opposition. That's that, that's alarming and significant. I thought the stuff on business was, was really interesting because she, you know, this is last week or maybe the week before, George Osborne went to do his one-day-a-week role at BlackRock, right? And I, and I suddenly thought, well, actually, what, what there is is an absence in Theresa May of all the kind of normal pro-city, pro-business, you know, buttering up that you would expect a Conservative to do. And that is kind of notable by its, by its absence. I think so. And I, I put that, I actually put that to her. I say, look, you don't really talk up the city in the way that we've been used to. So even under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, she said, well, actually, I, um, you know, I used to work there. And then she changed the subject immediately to say what I want is business to be more rooted in the community and have a greater sense of social responsibility. This is interesting language. Uh, and on foreign policy, uh, you, you referenced a bit of her Philadelphia speech, which we talked about on the podcast before, about this idea wasn't we, we can't remake the world in our own image. I mean, that's a kind of a break. I know Cameron had his own, he intervened in Libya, not very successfully. Uh, we didn't get an intervention in Syria because he couldn't get it through the commons. Where do you sense that she would stand on any kind of future interventions? Yeah, there's, there's a significant break. I think the Philadelphia speech was the most significant on foreign policy by British Prime Minister since Blair's in Chicago in 1999, where he outlined his idealistic foreign policy, his liberal interventionist foreign policy. When I spoke to George Osborne a couple of years ago at length, when I interviewed him, he described himself as a liberal interventionist. Cameron, again, was sort of never really seemed to me to have a coherent foreign policy. And, and Libya, I think, was a disaster. But nevertheless, she's, she doesn't believe in intervening in other countries to impose liberal values on them. That's, that's significant. But nor is she a sort of classic Tory isolationist. I think she believes in the national interest. And if an intervention is in the national interest she will intervene. But it won't be an ideological intervention. You've it won't been, be a Blairite intervention. I mean, Stephen, you've been quite interesting on her on Russia, right? She is now very much out on a limb. Yeah, Britain is far and away the most anti-Russia nation left. Of all of the plausible French presidential contenders, let's say that somehow François Fillon resuscitates his campaign, he is, is fairly pro-Russia. Uh, he wants a European army, but to do a, a deal with Russia. So it's not clear what he wants the European army to be for. Macron is also f- pro uh, kind of coming together again and doing a sort of reset of that relationship. And Le Pen, of course, is 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 the Kremlin's chosen candidate in that election. So she is far alone on the Russia issue because she has been unable to sell Trump on that. 
for for obvious uh, reasons. But she did see. I mean, she said to you, Jason, didn't she, that I know I got him to say yes into the microphone about NATO. I mean, it it reminded me that press conference a bit when Joanna Lumley marched for Woolis out to to, um, to be nice about the Gurkhas. Like we have agreed, haven't we, Mr. Trump, that we're going to support NATO? Yes, it did seem. It did seem. And I said, did you have that guarantee in private as well as at that at that press conference? She said she had. But then she said, look, he de- he definitely said it into the microphone. There was a slight sort of I thought a desperate sense to somehow bring Trump into into alongside a position or support a position that she wants. One of the interesting quotes you got from her was when she said, look, I don't approach people from the point of view of, oh, so they're going to be like X and I will therefore do Y. She said, I kind of just take them as I find them, which you kind of think, well, okay, that's admirable up to a point. But one of the things we know about Trump, if you studied him at all, is that he lies, lies frequently and also clearly lies to himself because he's then angry when he is... Lies are exposed. And you kind of think that feels like quite a, an interesting blind spot to have in terms of your dealing with Trump, I just thought. Yes, I think so, Stephen, or whether it was just diplomacy. I mean, she was so reluctant to say anything about Trump in the sense, I mean, she wouldn't condemn him, obviously, but nor would she commend him. I mean, she didn't say anything favourable about him at all. The other thing I thought was interesting in, in the interview was when she said how she works, her method, as it were, she decides what the outcome is and then works backwards from there. In other words, it's about the end rather than the means. And that's interesting in relation to Brexit. I think that's... A, so we know what she wants. Will she get it? And she's going to... I think as soon as Article 50 is triggered, she loses control of one key part of her foreign policy. In other words, she's dependent upon the the rumped or the, the rejected EU 27. Very difficult. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing in, in terms of a lot of her foreign policy is so she's got this whole, yeah, we're not going to intervene in other countries. Cameron had his whole, we can't drop democracy like bombs from 10,000 feet and ended up intervening in Libya. Gordon Brown had terrorism isn't a cause, it's a crime, which was a, a deliberate attempt to ratchet down the, the rhetoric stuff. And he was you know, the first prime minister in the era of mass drone warfare. My instinct is when we come to the end of the Theresa May era, we will see it as much more interventionist in foreign policy terms than it describes itself now, and probably much less interventionist in state terms than it would ideally like to be. That's interesting, because she has changed her stance on Israel from kind of telling off John Kerry for protesting about settlement building in the UN to now saying, well, actually, of course, we don't think that all this settlement building is a particularly good idea. So I I think you're probably right to say that she's, I mean, she's not as as ideologically fixated as kind of people would would suggest. I I think that's right. And in a way, Stephen, what you're suggesting, correct me if I'm wrong, is that she's a classic pragmatic Tory. She responds. She, she's not an ideologue. Of course, we know that. She's not a Thatcherite. She's not a Macmillanite, one nation Tory. Therefore, she responds to events in that classic, pragmatic, sceptical Tory way. Is that, I, I is think, that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, I think she's probably the most Tory prime minister we've ever had, right? So she doesn't really think about things in a programmatic way. She has a kind of instinctive and slightly vague sense of fairness. And she has an idea about ends, but it's quite difficult to get your kind of classic conservatives to think about things in kind of like, oh, so maybe there's a wider structural issue, or maybe there's a, a wider picture here. And we've and obviously that is what powers that party. It's what animates their grassroots, is why she's so popular with their activists. But we've never actually seen that implemented as a governing philosophy before. And yeah, and I think she is yeah, she's really an interesting case study. Well, um, that's all we've got time for, but do buy the magazine. You can read the entire piece there. And um, it's got a very striking cover as well. We commissioned uh, an illustrator to do that. So um, yeah, you should be able to spot it quite easily on the newsstands. Thank you, Jason, for coming down to the bunker. Great pleasure to be here. And now it's time for a feature we call 
I'm not doing it. You've been mean about it too much, and it, I'm not enjoying okay, it anymore. Okay, you, you ask it. us. See, it's not as good when you do it, but you ruin my fun. The question this week is about the three-nine whip, which is a phrase that we use all the time. Labour had one over the Article 50 debate, but what does it mean? Now, here's the thing that I know about the three-nine whip. It comes from the underlining, right? Which means it's like, you must vote with the party on this, and it's like underlined three times. Like, re- no, really, you must. And also, you can't do with the three-nine whip, correct me if I'm wrong, what you can do with lesser whippage, which is you can't pair. You have to, with a special note from your mum and the speaker, you have to walk through the lobby. No, so you you might pair with a three-line whip, depending on what it's for. Mostly with a three-line whip, uh, particularly something where you hope you might defeat the government. No one is keen for there to be pairing. But yeah, again, it depends on illnesses. Yeah, exactly as you say, you get a list of your votes for the coming session, and they have different levels of line underneath them. A one-line whip is like, if you're there, please vote for, but you don't have to be there, and we're not that fussed. And sometimes governments can just get ambushed with this because they don't realise something is going to be contentious. So a good example of this, 2004, the votes on Parliament having regular hours, which helps people, you know, see their kids, their partners, etc, etc. There was an old guard of MPs which very much did not like the family-friendly hours uh, for a variety of reasons. And 2004, the then Labour government went, look, it's going to pass fine. We've got a majority of 90 billion. If you want to turn up to vote for it, you have to vote for it. But if you've got more important things to do with your time, feel free. It turned out that the numbers were not fine and it got overturned and they then had to re-vote on it in 2011 or something to get back family-friendly hours. Um, Which is interesting because the Brexit vote this week has been very late sittings, which is not something that happens so much anymore. I mean, Ken Clark was telling me that he remembers the days which we talked about in coverage of this house you know when everybody was being like wheeled in you know people was there every night until the early hours people were kind of just basically trying to kind of wear down the opposition by and also by like kind of constantly a, a late vote now is not what a late vote so like at the end of these late votes you could still go on a tube and it wouldn't even be like the last tube right you know it's not like it'd be like a larry tube full of drunk people you can just get home via public transport now which is i think is much better frankly like it's one of those things where maybe just organize it better but pairing we should probably explain as well because that's something that trips people up when they kind of do this thing about look at these mps who didn't even bother to turn and actually if they'd only they'd bothered to turn up then the government could have been defeated and that misunderstands what's happening with pairing which is you have a an opposition mp and you both agree essentially not to turn up harriet Harman tells a good story in her book of turning up at parliament yeah she's still pregnant at that point with her first child and basically every tory in the world wanted to um, be her pair because they assumed that she'd end up missing lots of votes and therefore they'd they'd get it alan clark wrote to her and just said by the way I am your pair <laughs> yeah but eventually she went with Douglas Hurd didn't she Douglas so, Hurd because his, his second wife had wrote to put her put a plea in saying we've got young children I'd like him to occasionally see them but that kind of stuff isn't necessarily as important anymore because the house as you say the house rules were changed under this kind of more family friendly yeah scheme. and they also line up with half term and they for had regular a baby schools. I don't know whose baby it was but there was a uh, baby Kevin Brennan there was a baby in the house yeah. and there was a kind of thing about this sort of ice by stranger thing that actually you couldn't take a baby through the division because what if the baby had accidentally voted? Oh god, that does sound like the plot of a terrible movie. And that's how the legislation was overturned. The uh, baby crawled through the lobby. And all credit to John Burko, who's been under fire this week, because the nursery that, that is now opposite One Parliament Street is a big innovation of his. And also, he was very relaxed about the baby. He was fine. He was like, maybe just people just don't count the baby and we can all just go on with our and, lives. And the thing about the nursery is, the thing that people occasionally do is they're like, oh, you lean in feminism. It only helps the middle class. I mean, one, like, you expand childcare as much as Harriet Harman has in her 
parliamentary career to everyone, not just people in parliament, and then you can come be nasal at me. But secondly, there are a lot of people who work in on the parliamentary estate who are not middle class or affluent by by any definition, particularly not when you consider they all have to live in London. The, the creche has been hugely transformative for the lives of a lot of people, parliamentary assistants, people who work in the shops, etc, etc. Yeah. And yeah, it is one of the many great things Burke does. But anyway, on to a two-line whip, yeah. which is basically, look, if you can be there, you need to be there, and if you're there, you've got to vote for us. But if, say, equal marriage is a good example, if you're worried and your constituents will be angry because they're very socially conservative, just go away. Just don't turn up. But if you vote against it, bad things will happen to you. That is a two-line whip. A three-line whip is, turn up, I don't care if your hair is on fire and your constituents are protesting outside your front yard, you are going to vote this way, and if Except not, Nick Brown will seem- eat there seems to be now a kind of two and a half line whip, which is what Article 50 was. I mean, essentially the way that it worked was if you were in the shadow cabinet and you broke the three and what you had to resign. But actually the lower people down seem to kind of, they haven't yet heard their fate about what's happened. And there was also a kind of assumption that actually anyone who's out, like Clive Lewis, can probably come back again quite quickly. So there is now a kind of bungee elastic three-line whip. Yeah. So, for example, to take the Iraq war, if your constituency was majority Muslim or had a lot of students in it and you said, like, look, I really can't, and you quit, your chances of coming back were actually quite high, provided you told people in good time and you didn't, and didn't take a dick the about it. Yeah. One of the things with Clive Lewis's resignation is where did we find out about it? In an official statement from the Labour Party with a quote that had been pre-written by, by Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn yeah. saying, I welcome you, the thing was. There have been other people who have resigned who perhaps their statements turned up in The Guardian or the NS website. Those people will not be invited back. And and so there, there has always been a slight fungibility. The difference, of course, is the people on the lower ranks of the front bench who have basically been told, look, if you weren't in the room where we discussed why we were going to do this, you are allowed to... Just keep it on the on the down low. Don't yeah. say anything about it. And don't be openly rebellious and give quotes. But And then we'll kind of pretend that it never happened. Say no more about it. That's my impression of Jeremy Corbyn. Say no more about it. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. Stephen needs new shoes, so please subscribe to the New Statesman at subscribe.newstatesman.com. Our podcast is produced by India Burke, and our music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. 